So an episode or two back, we covered the tragic story of Adam Walsh, which quite honestly led to parents overall more aware of the dangers to our children. So today we're going to hop back on that theme again, but this time with some Halloween spirit, I suppose. Media-driven fear with old legends and horror stories of razor blades and caramels or poison lace candy. We all know the deal, but do you know the actual story behind the douchebag who exploited this urban legend just to make a quick buck off his kids? Yep. It's the case of the Candyman. What's up, guys? It's your girl Ginger, the true crime queen. I'm reminding you now that listener discretion is always advised. The dark nature of the show is not suitable for young ears or those that are sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's get it. spooky season you guys we've all seen it the halloween decorations are out the candy sales are coming every year on halloween we spend hours and tons of energy running from house to house to get the most candy we possibly can and we take it all back home where our parents tediously go through each and every reese's peanut butter cup every snickers every single thing to make sure some weirdo wasn't shoving hooks or something into them some asshole hoping that an innocent child would get hurt or even worse die After candy passes inspection, of course, mom and dad usually take a little treat for themselves, known as mom or dad tax in my house, and you got to pay your tax man. But why do we do this? It's it's a better to be safe than sorry type of thing, and we've been doing it for years because rumors have existed ever since big companies started manufacturing products instead of getting everything from the person that made it in your town. But interestingly, there has actually never been a confirmed incident of stranger poisoning Halloween candy. Just years and years of media-driven fear, because the possibility does and will exist as long as we accept candy from strangers, right? Well, it's only strangers that would hurt us, right? Well, in theory, but this case proves one that defies all human emotion and logic. Heads up, because we're going to be talking about a pretty upsetting death of a child, so obvious trigger warning for that. It's super sad, but it's not necessarily gory, just so you know going in. But this will also be an informative ride, too. I mean, the more you know, right? So, the Candyman. As far as the nickname the Candyman goes, we aren't talking drugs, y'all. Actual candy, obviously. Halloween, duh. Though, there is also a Houston, Texas serial killer, Dean Coral, who also is sometimes referred to as the Candyman. But that's because he was grooming his victims by giving out free candy from his father's company and then plied these victims with drugs later on. Also, there's the 1992 film called Candyman where the deadly ghost with a hook for a hand can be summoned from saying his name five times in a mirror. But today we're going to talk about what I think is the scariest version of the Candyman, which was the man who was just willing to kill his own flesh and blood just to make a quick buck. Ronald Clark O'Brien was actually a 31-year-old husband and father of two children, 8-year-old Timothy and 4-year-old Elizabeth. And in 1974, he was working as an optician in the Texas State Optical Center in the Sharpstown area of Texas. And creepily, old Ronald was also said to be a deacon at the local Second Baptist Church, so you'd think he'd be pretty freaking familiar with the phrase, thou shalt not kill, but whatever. 
It was reportedly a pretty shitty evening on Halloween of 1974. It was cold, rainy, and windy. Ronald's son, Timothy O'Brien, was said to have dressed in what I'm sure was a super kick-ass Planet of the Apes costume. And there's actually a pretty popular photo that circulates around the internet that supposedly shows little Timmy dressed up as Cornelius from the original Planet of the Apes. And he's on a couch with five other children. But during my research, I actually found an article that says that the photo is actually not of Timothy O'Brien, or anyone in Texas for that matter. And it seems like at this point, the photo is just one of those weird things that seems to get passed along with the case information due to how many times it's already been noted in other retellings of the case but it's not actually correct. I will include the photo in sources anyway, so you can just see how creepy 70s and 80s kids' costumes are, though. Whatever costumes they were wearing, though, the O'Briens had made plans to do their trick-or-treating with another family who attends the same Baptist church known as the Bates family. Now, Ronald took his two children over to the Bates's much nicer neighborhood where naturally the candy should be better. And like I said before, it's a pretty depressing weather that Halloween evening, so the two fathers decide to walk each of their two children up and down two long wraparound blocks of Citation and Dunrell Drive. Along the way, the four eager children would come upon a dark, clearly not celebrating or handing out candy anymore type of home, but of course the kids enthusiastically try the doorbell anyways, and when no one answered, the kids then ran off to the next house with the neighbor, Jim. But Ronald held back a minute or two. This particular home was said to have this outer wall that sort of hid the actual doorway from view of the sidewalk. So a couple seconds go by and Ronald is running back from the home with these five giant pixie sticks yelling to the other dad, Jim, hey, you guys must have some rich neighbors. And I'm not sure if pixie sticks are something that's available everywhere in the world or not. So in case you don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically a two foot long plastic straw full of flavored sugar. The shit's like crack for kids. Anyways, Ronald O'Brien walked up and he gave a pixie stick to each of the four children, his two children and two to Jim Bates' children, Mark and Kimberly, while he saved the fifth one, the last one, for him. Dad tax, of course. As it started raining harder, the kids were satisfied with their bounties of candy and the two families walked down the street back towards the Bates' home, where unfortunately, though, Ronald would actually end up giving his last pixie stick to another little innocent trick-or-treater that they had recognized from church along their way back. I guess they had only trick-or-treated for a total of 30 minutes or so, which is insane because I remember making my dad walk for like at least an hour or so. Even this one year when we had snow on the ground really early in the season. And I really need to thank my dad for putting up with my ass. After the Halloween festivities are over and the O'Briens then return back to their home And as the excitement of the night starts to settle down before bedtime, eight-year-old Timothy pleads with his dad, Ronald, one more piece of candy before bed, to which Ronald replies, yes, but you can only choose one. Well, obviously, Timothy chooses the Mega Pixie Stick because it's like the biggest bang for your buck if you could only choose one candy, you know what I mean? Which is exactly what Ronald was likely hoping for and really makes this all the more fucked up, honestly. And here's your trigger warning for Timothy's death, but I think you all saw this one coming. Within minutes of eating from the pixie stick, Timothy would have an immediate reaction to the candy and he reportedly ran to the home's bathroom where he started immediately vomiting while crying about a really bad stomach ache and then suddenly began convulsing on the bathroom floor. Ronald reportedly held his son's body until he went limp and then Ronald or possibly his wife Deneen then called 911 and an ambulance would end up rushing Timothy down to the nearby Southmore Hospital where he was unfortunately pronounced dead on arrival. 
Shortly after, Deer Park police are also notified of a child's death and they quickly head over to the same hospital where they would find Father Ronald O'Brien sitting quietly next to the gurney. And Ronald proceeds to tell police about how just prior to Timothy getting sick, he had just helped his son eat this big old pixie stick that they had received while out trick-or-treating in their friend's neighborhood. He goes on and he even describes how the sugar had seemed to have hardened inside the straw and his son wasn't able to pour the sugar out of the tube, so he just, you know, crushed it in between his palms to fix the blockage and then he even held it up so that Timothy could just pour it straight into his mouth. Timothy had then apparently complained that the candy tasted bitter, so instead of throwing it away like anyone else would do, because who cares, you have a whole nother pail of candy, Ronald goes the complete opposite way and gives Timothy a big-ass glass of Kool-Aid to wash down the bitter powder of his pixie stick. Now why in God's name would you ever give your kid a mega pixie stick and a tall glass of Kool-Aid right before bed? Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, if you're not trying to kill him, you're most definitely trying to give him diabetes. And I mean, quite obviously, Ronald had an agenda because this defies all parental logic. But at the time, Deer Park police didn't really have any reason to suspect Ronald. The fear of strangers tampering with candy has existed for years, even prior to this instance. So naturally, they became worried that someone evil in the neighborhood was handing out tricks and not treats. They ask where Ronald had been trick-or-treating, and he describes that he had only been on two blocks in the Pasadena, Texas neighborhood, but that he couldn't remember exactly which house they had received these pixie sticks from. So police just haul ass to every single house on the streets of Citation and Dunrell Drive, which is like 30 houses, and they proceed to ask each person what candy they handed out and even to wake up their own children to check on them because of this apparent risk to the entire community. Other people in the community even started bringing in their children's entire collection of candy in fear that someone had poisoned something. And I guess the Pasadena and the surrounding police departments were just stuffed with Halloween candy in the week following Halloween. Local hospitals had even offered to x-ray Halloween candy before allowing your child to eat it, which is interesting because I would have to imagine that x-rays on candy might cause radiation of some kind, which is also not healthy, but I don't really know enough about radiation to know if there's any logic to that, so. Police did successfully manage to find three additional giant pixie sticks within the neighborhood, thankfully unopened, in addition to the two from the O'Brien home. The other dad, Jim Bates, who went trick-or-treating with the O'Brien family, later said to reporters that he had went to work that night after trick-or-treating when his wife later called him to say that little Timmy O'Brien had died and that their own daughter wasn't feeling well either. So in like absolute fear his children had been poisoned, Jim rushes back home and he finds that neither one of his children had eaten the tainted pixie sticks because their mom was afraid that they would spill them in the house and his daughter had turned out to just have a headache, thank God. I also read that the last child whom Ronald had given the fifth pixie stick to while on the way home was actually found asleep in his bed with the pixie stick gripped in his hand, but that his hands weren't strong enough to undo the staple at the top to like open it. And thankfully, he just ended up falling asleep while trying to do so. I mean, can you freaking imagine the horror that those parents went through though before they were able to wake up their child? Like, holy shit, dude. I mean, all they know is some cops are banging on their door at like midnight on Halloween wanting you to check on your child because some fucking asshole was passing out poisonous candy. Literally every parent's worst nightmare, honestly, and that's exactly the kind of chaos this Ronald asshole knew he would stir up. What's more heartless than that? I mean, especially as a parent himself, it's absolutely disgusting. I really hate this poor excuse for a man. The testing done on the five recovered pixie sticks show that the one that eight-year-old Timothy ate from contained enough potassium cyanide to kill two full-grown adults, 
and the other four doses could have killed even three to four adults because the first two inches of powder consisted of straight-up poison. And this is the poison that smells of bitter almonds. Remember Stella Nichols' bitch ass? After police finding only five of these pixie sticks between the two families that went out together, they're still not able to find out which house these giant pixie sticks were coming from. So detectives then press Ronald a little harder to rack his tiny little brain some more because something isn't adding up here. So they go back out and they walk the Pasadena streets with Ronald to dip this in the butt. And after walking up and down the two blocks a total of three times, and the dude's still not acting like he can't remember, Ronald finally sucks it up and he points to some random home of a man named Courtney Melvin. So police then begin looking into this guy and they kind of allow Ronald to grieve for now. Well, this Melvin guy was also the worst person in the entire neighborhood that Ronald could have accused because Courtney Melvin just happened to be an air traffic controller at the William P. Hobby Airport. Police could find that Courtney was actually at work until 11 p.m. that night, but more importantly, during the time in which Ronald claims he was given the tainted pixie sticks. Well, unluckily for Ronald, Courtney's alibi checks out with like 200 people that could verify he was at work on Halloween. So eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien was then laid to rest on November 2nd, just a couple days after his death, apparently with his dad, Ronald, delivering a somber eulogy that had everyone else in the crowd crying. That Jim Bates guy, though, who also went trick-or-treating with them, was there at the memorial too and later told reporters that even he left the memorial feeling suspicious about Ronald after watching him walk by his son's open casket without even looking or taking a moment to say goodbye or like anything. And he's really not the only one that's getting suspicious either. Detectives begin focusing their sights back at Ronald because these pixie sticks still can't be traced past him at this point and Jim Bates had told police that he personally never saw Courtney Melvin's door open. And all he saw was Ronald running up all excited about these pixie sticks. Then, police were also able to find from an insurance agent that Ronald had recently upped his children's life insurance policies and only waited a disgusting 24 hours after Timothy's death to claim his payout. So with that, three days after Timothy's memorial, his father Ronald is arrested on November 5th of 1974. He was charged with one count of capital murder and then four counts of attempted murder for the other children that were put at risk of being poisoned. This included his daughter Elizabeth and Jim Bates' children Mark and Kimberly. After a search of his home, detectives discover a receipt tape with overdue bill amounts totaling to nearly the same exact amount that Ronald would have stood to earn had he successfully poisoned both of his children and never got caught. They also found a pocket knife with sugar residue and plastic pieces appearing to match the pixie stick straws. After six months in custody, Ronald's jury trial would officially start on May 5th of 1975. And outside the courtroom, there were said to be reporters all the way from like London and even Germany too. So the world had really been taken aback by Ronald's callousness. At the trial, the state would explain to the jurors that Ronald Clark O'Brien had killed his son purely for financial gain. They would show the vast amount of debt that Ronald had been stacking up for the last 10 to 15 years, putting him around $100,000 in debt at the time of the murder. And that was in 1974. They went on to show that he was unable to even hold one job for a consistent amount of time and had 21 different jobs over the last 10 years of his life. He was even said to be suspected of theft at the job he was currently working at as an optician, according to his coworkers. Ronald was even on his way to losing the family home to foreclosure while their car was also about to be repossessed. I mean, these O'Briens were literally swimming in debt, you guys. Prosecutors would have to show that Ronald's premeditation had even stretched back all the way to January of 1974, 
which was about 10 months before the poisoning, when he had taken two separate $10,000 life insurance policies on each one of his own children, Timothy and Elizabeth. His wife didn't want to get them, so he told the agent his wife's signature wasn't necessary and to keep them filed at the insurance office. Ronald also secretly paid cash for a second set of additional policies for $20,000 on each child back on October 3rd, just 28 days before his son would die. And he didn't have his wife sign these second policies either. So Ronald's endgame here was actually to kill both of his children for a total of $60,000, but the plan didn't work out and only Timothy died. Like, what the fuck? Bankruptcy? No? Never heard of her? Huh? What? The actual fuck. The state would also make sure to explain to jurors about a few instances of how Ronald had actually attempted to order potassium cyanide through his work, and it turns out that a co-worker had also testified in court that Ronald had once inquired to him about cyanide poisoning while they were at work together. Detectives found that after Ronald purchased the two additional policies in October, he also went to a nearby chemical store named Curtin Matheson Scientific Company looking to purchase some cyanide. But the salesman there actually testified that Ronald ended up leaving after he was told it was only available for purchase in five-pound bags, which is like a lot of cyanide, really, when you don't need much at all. The big kicker for jurors, though, was probably when Ronald's own wife, Danine, also testified against her husband in court, saying that she never saw one tear ever come from her husband's eyes, but he did put on an Oscar-winning performance of fake sadness and yelling and punching the wall all Who would do this to an eight-year-old child? But she didn't believe the act for a second. She clarified that she had only learned of the two additional $20,000 policies that Ronald had taken out in early October after Timothy had already died, and that she only knew of the two $10,000 ones that he wanted to purchase back in January of that same year, but included that she didn't even want to get those at the time because of how financially strapped they were. But apparently Ronald bought them anyway. And really, the creepiest example she talked of was when Ronald had recently brought up to her the biblical story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son Isaac and how Abraham must have felt about that. Yikes, yo, that is not a good look at all. But Ronald and his defense would hold on strong to their argument that it simply wasn't Ronald responsible for the poisonings. It was really some stranger out there in the neighborhood getting away with these crimes and could possibly hurt others if we wrongfully put Ronald away. I mean, come on, he's so obviously being framed by the real killer. Please take some mercy on this devoted father whose wife doesn't even believe him. On June 3rd of 1975, not even a year after the murder, Ronald Clark O'Brien was found guilty after just 41 minutes of juror deliberations, despite all his efforts to make it seem as though his son was just a completely random victim of some sort of long-running urban legend. The jury quite obviously saw right through Ronald's bullshit, along with the buttload of evidence that clearly pointed towards financial motive. And this jury wasn't fucking around either because it only took them another 71 minutes of deliberating to determine that Ronald's crimes were fit for the death penalty because Texas doesn't play. Ronald's wife immediately divorced his ass just after sentencing. She later said in one of the very few interviews that she ever did that she fully believes in his guilt and that she even believed she was possibly the original intended victim because she had recalled when he tried to set up these insurance appointments for her but she didn't want to get a policy because she knew they wouldn't be able to afford these premiums, so she believes that he then planned to do the same to the children behind her back. 
His ex-wife, Danine, was then said to have gotten remarried four years after this divorce and has pretty much worked diligently to keep the relationship between Ronald and his daughter Elizabeth next to, like, non-existent since she was also one of his intended victims, though she was really too young to understand what had happened at the time. Then I heard on a Forensic Files episode that covers the case that Ronald was basically a complete fucking loser while he spent his time in prison, with most of the other inmates actually bullying him constantly about hurting children. Interestingly, his fellow inmates even petitioned for Ronald to be publicly executed for killing his own kid. And that's when you know you're a real piece of shit, honestly, because when you're not even good enough to be the prison bitch, that's pretty bad. Regardless of being friendless, though, Ronald continued maintaining his innocence, actually, pursuing appeal efforts, and it turns out that his execution was actually pushed out multiple times because of this, with four different dates being rescheduled. Ronald's first execution date was scheduled for August 8th of 1980. However, his lawyers attempted to appeal his conviction and were actually granted a stay of execution, which bought Ronald a bit more time. And honestly, that does seem pretty fast for death row. I thought I read on one of the Texas.gov sites that death row inmates spent an average of 10 years before being executed, and he had only been there about five. So when his first appeal doesn't work, his execution was then again scheduled this time for May 25th of 1981. But yet again, Ronald's lawyers were granted another stay of execution, so it would be stalled once more. The courts then creatively scheduled his third execution date on the anniversary of his son Timothy's death, and the judge was even said to have offered to personally drive Ronald down to the unit where they administer the executions. The level of disgust here, I think, is pretty evident. And of course, Ronald's lawyers sought a fourth stay of execution, which again was granted which is sort of crazy, because I mean, how many chances does one douche get here? Lastly, he was scheduled to be executed on March 31st of 1984 for the fourth time, and obviously the defense would petition against it, but this time Supreme Court Justice Brian White finally rejected the petition only three days before the day he was to be executed. So they notify his family and he's given notice as well. And even now, most executions are somewhat controversial depending on what side of the fence you fall on with the death penalty. But there was an especially big demonstration of about 300 people held outside the death chamber where Ronald was to be executed that day back in 84. And there was a heavy presence both for and against his death. Those who wanted him dead eerily chanted trick-or-treat while throwing candy at those who are against capital punishment, which is really quite the image here. And regardless of what was happening outside the chambers, though, 40-year-old Ronald Clark O'Brien was reportedly administered a lethal mixture of barbiturates, paralytics, and potassium chlorine when he took his last breath. His chest apparently involuntarily heaved, and he subsequently died two minutes later at 12.48 a.m. on Saturday, March 31st, 1984, at the Huntsville, Texas prison unit. His ex-wife, Danine, was quoted in saying, it's over, that's fine, justice took a slow turn, but it's done now. She also said that this ended a nearly 10-year tragedy and her now 15-year-old daughter could finally move on. Also, Deneen never cashed the insurance money on Timothy because she felt like it was blood money and she planned on making do without it, which is so fucking cool. What I'm personally salty about, though, is that this lethal injection was more humane than how his own son died. Like, Timothy died in agonizing pain. While lethal injection includes drugs that reduce pain that inmates might incur during the lethal process, and I really just wish that the state could have, you know, 
justified saving just a tad bit of money or maybe just kept the painkiller out so Ronald could have suffered at least half as bad as his eight-year-old child did. It's incredibly unfair. Ronald's own family, especially his parents, legitimately believe that Ronald was wrongfully convicted and they stood by their son's innocence the entire time. After his execution, his family also announced to the media that they did have intentions of claiming his body from the prison and plan on giving Ronald a proper burial despite what everyone else thought about him. His father vowed that Ronald wouldn't be buried in the prison cemetery like the other convicts because he wasn't like them, at least not in his opinion. Now, during my research, I kept seeing this misconception commonly noted that Ronald Clark O'Brien was the first person to be given his execution in the form of lethal injection in Texas, rather than like the electric chair or hanging. But that's not actually true. Ronald was the third person in Texas and the fourth person in the nation to have been administered death via lethal injection. So it was still fairly new, but it was not the first, as I read on a bunch of places, including Wikipedia, I think. Which isn't like the golden standard for info, but most people go there for their information. And another weird fact I also found that's semi-interesting too, I guess. Within hours of his death, Ronald had actually been taken to a nearby morgue where his eyeballs were removed by toxicologists so that they could study the effects of lethal injection on the eyes and if they are still able to be used for transplants for those who need eyes. And that's sort of neat. I'm not sure if they are transplantable or not because it seems as though there's still a bit of an ethical struggle in regards to reusing a convict's organs for donation. I also sort of wonder if it had anything to do with him being an eye doctor too or if there's just some last ditch effort with a get into heaven free card or something because I should remind you all that Christian Longo who also murdered his family for financial reasons and was hella religious, even went out and published a book bitching about the fact that he couldn't donate his organs because he's a death row inmate. What's up with that? Is it? Is that like a family annihilator thing or what? Is it a fake religious thing? I'm, what is that? Like, yeah, you murdered your family for money, but at least you're an organ donor. Why do you care? Come on. It's reported that Ronald's last words were this. What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I will forgive all who has taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone who I may have offended in any way in my past 39 years, I pray and ask for your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and I ask for God's forgiveness for all of us, respectively, as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love to those close to me. Know in your hearts, I love you, one and all. God bless you all, and may God's best blessings be always yours. Ronald C. O'Brien, P.S. During my time here, I have been treated well by the TDC personnel. Man, what a fucking asshole. You methodically plan to kill your children, as well as three others, hold your son's lifeless body after poisoning him, go to trial, and repeatedly say you've been framed and then spit all this religious bullshit like you know anything about ethics. I mean, if there is a god, he most definitely is going to send people like this to the darkest pits of hell. And the truth of the matter is, Ronald pushed his luck damn near 10 years after he had heartlessly poisoned his own child for a measly $30,000. So he can fucking rot, honestly. Sorry, rant over, I have this weird pet peeve with people who claim to be religious, yet fucking kill people. There's no, <laughs> there's no logic. So that was the story of Ronald Clark O'Brien and the Candyman, and just a contributing factor to why we still check our candy. So I have a real quick shout out to Bianca G. Thank you for reaching out and also leaving a review on Apple. 
Reviews and hitting the follow button wherever you listen to the podcast helps my podcast get higher chances of being seen. So seriously, thank you, Bianca. And shout out to Kendra for your awesome email. Thank you so much. You are so kind. I really want to thank every single person who's ever given my podcast a try. I really appreciate it. So this year, if you guys are going trick-or-treating, make sure to check the candy. And especially this year, I think Halloween is going to look a little bit different in most places. I don't I don't really know about other countries, but I, I bet a lot of people in my neighborhood are not going to be trick-or-treating this year simply because of COVID. What I was going to do was set out some candy for the neighborhood kids, and then for my own kids, I was going to actually hand-make some pumpkin pinatas, and then they could just break them open and we could have like a little house party. That way we still do something fun, but we don't go out and risk other people, so that was my solution to a safer Halloween anyway. But I'll see you back here in two weeks with another spooky episode. And remember, always check the candy. that was the tea. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of the story. And if so, please tell all your creepy friends about it. You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can find me slinging those memes on Instagram at True Crime Queen. Check them out if you need to laugh after all this dark shit. If you'd like to support the podcast, check out patreon.com slash gingerthetruecrimequeen. As always, remember to lock those damn doors. All right, you guys. Bye.